Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Kaynard Hunt, and I represent the appellant TGG, who I will refer to as father in this argument. The United States Supreme Court has held it is cardinal with us that the custody, care, and nurture of a child resides first in the parents. Here, before any adoption petition was filed, fathers sought to be a part of his biological child's life and maintain a parent-child relationship with his child by filing this paternity action. In addition, before that filing, both father and respondent HES, who I refer to as mother, signed under oath a recognition of parentage for the purposes of establishing paternity, and by signing, father accepted the obligation under oath to provide full financial support for his child. Counsel, quick question on the chronology. When did father request the paternity, uh, the blood test? He requested the paternity test in February. But when, uh, when in February? Uh, it was mid-February. He was having problems getting a hold of, mother wasn't responding to him after the child was born. So it was like February 12th, February 18th in that time period um, because they got the other sample from the child, I believe it was around February 22nd and the results were in March 5th. Yeah, the record's unclear and just suggests, as you said, mid-February. And I'm wondering if there's anything in the record indicating whether the request for the test was more than or less than 30 days after the child was born on January 12th. The record doesn't reveal that fact. Counsel, does the completion of the blood test create any form of a presumption of paternity? It does. Pursuant to which statute? I, I don't recall exactly which statute, but the fact of the matter is there's no question that he is the father of the child, and actually the mother by signing the recognition of parentage, also recognized that fact, although later she tried to revoke it, even though it's undisputed that he is the biological father. Um, the fact that father- Sorry, one other question. Does that presumption, um, in your view, create any notice rights for the adoption? We have not argued that the presumption gives any notice rights but we have argued that the statute as written allows this paternity action to proceed, um, both with regard to what occurred with the recognition of parentage and also by construction of the statute regarding the, the father's adoption registry itself. And if that isn't sufficient, we've then also raised constitutional issue of due process and equal protection. Council, just on the notice issue, um, 259.49 sets out the different scenarios in, in which a putative father can, would be notified and would have the right to consent to the adoption. And um, blood tests aren't one of those that are listed. Correct. And the paternity action is listed, but it has the requirement that it has to be within 30 days after the child's birth. That's correct. Okay. But also the recognition of parentage is recognized. And it is our position that with that signing of the recognition of parentage, that therefore there was entitlement under the statute 
to notice of the adoption. And that would depend on whether it was properly revoked or not. That's correct. Okay. It is father's I just want to skip to the end of the sentence here and ask you, um, assume that we conclude that your client was entitled to notice, and so therefore subdivision 8 of the statute doesn't bar the paternity action. What happens in the case? What happens in the case is then we then go forward with my client asserting that he wants full custody, both physical and legal custody. So it would be the custody would go forward. What happens to the adoption? The adoption um, would not go forward. I mean, I, I think when we're looking here at the fact that you have a, the father who would then be a legal father would have, if you, looking at the best interest, the interest would reside clearly with the father and that the father would trump any, pater or any adoption proceeding. Is there any issue for trial in the paternity action about whether, about the father's, I'm going to just to say generally good faith. In other words, there seems to be a dispute in the record about whether father could have filed, could have registered earlier, um, whether he could have filed his paternity action earlier. And I just wonder if there's an issue for trial there. I don't think that there's an issue for trial there. If the court agrees that the paternity action could properly go forward, then, I mean, I mean, he is the biological father. Paternity is established, and then we're uh, dealing with custody. How do we factor in the fact that this child has been with the I'm going to call them the adoptive parents, um, just generically. How do we, I mean, how is it in the best interests of this child for the child now to be taken out of that home, really the only home the child has ever known? Obviously, it, it uh, leads to a difficult situation, but the fact of the matter is legal rights should not be determined based on the fact that here, if father indeed was entitled to proceed, then the fact that the lower courts got it wrong should not somehow preclude father from his rights. And the fact of the matter is, is when you look at it in terms of timing, I mean, this action was brought when the child was just a couple months old, and this record cuts off, I believe, at this maybe five or seven month time period of the child. So this court is a reviewing court is looking at it in that time frame. So here we have a father stepping up very early, seeking uh, his rights under the statutes. Counsel, what concerns me is in the Hydebreder case. Is that how you say it, Hydebreder? That's how I say it. Okay, that's good. Um, you know, the court talks about, I mean, the, obviously the 30-day time frame in which to register is 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 very brief and it's uh you know it's a harsh result if you don't if you don't register during that time frame but the court in Hydebreder specifically talked about that timetable and talked about promptness is measured in terms of the baby's life not by the onset of the father's awareness i mean it it seems like uh that we've already considered this in Hydebreder and i'm having a hard time with your attempt to distinguish Hydebreder. And, and let me just tell you why so you can assuage my concerns. But 
in Heidbreder, um, by day 31 after the baby was born, the father had actually done more there than the father did here. The father had, there had consulted a lawyer and had actually registered. Now, he registered one day late, and we said that that didn't violate um, due process um, because we couldn't, we, we thought it wasn't up to us to determine that substantial compliance is enough. So why isn't this case Heidebreder? Well, in Heidebreder, if I recall correctly, in one of the footnotes, the court talks about the fact that the father in Heidebreder really did not want the child. What he wanted was to thwart the adoption, which certainly is not the situation here. Here we have a father who moved from another state back to Minnesota, signed a recognition of parentage, which under oath he would require that he pay all the birthing expenses. So he has uh, recognized that he is, you know, fully financially responsible and he has stepped up to do that. The other thing in Heidebreder that is distinguishable, in that case you have the adoption petition was already filed before the father in Heidebreder brought his action. Here we have a situation where there was no adoption uh, pending when father brought his paternity action. And that is a key distinguishing factor here because we're not trying to thwart any adoption. We, this case came in first. But why under Heidebreder would the adopted parents have even thought that it might be an issue? Because under Heidebreder, which was the law at the time, they, you know, after 30 days, then that was a settled matter. And, you know, I, I can't fault the adoptive parents for not bringing the case sooner when they had, you know, they had had the child placed with them, the studies were ongoing. By the time he filed his adoption, uh, his paternity action, the child had been with the adoptive parents for over two months. Uh, they had, is it up to 12 months, I think, to file the, adopted, the adoption petition. And they just had no reason to know that they should race to the courthouse in case somebody appeared after that 30-day deadline. Well, on the other hand, I mean, the court doesn't know that when this paternity action is filed, whether the adoptive parents, potentially adoptive parents, are in fact going to file a petition for adoption. So here we have a situation where there is no petition for adoption. You have a father that's coming in, looking at it, is fully capable and willing to take care of his own child. And under those circumstances, it is vastly different than what the court was situated with with Heidebreder. Counsel, I've got another chronology question. Um, and the chronology, the test report was issued on March 5th and the father registered with the uh, uh, adoption registry on March 21. Uh, is there any evidence in the record before March 21 of the uh, father's commitment to the child uh, akin to the test set out in Lair versus Roberts? What, what, what evidence is there before March 21? There are the text messages that are going between father and mother, which are attached the, to the complaint, where the father is telling the mother that he is willing to take care of the child, that he has the ability to do so, 
And the fact is that he has physically moved from one state back to Minnesota during that time period to, to take care of his and remind child. Remind me, what's the earliest such text indicating that? It, there isn't a date, unfortunately, on the text, but the time frame talks about um, the mother's talking that there's a time period where she needs to consent to adoption. So it's sometime before that March 21 date where the recognition of parentage is signed. Would it be, be before or after the father requested the test? Pardon me? Would it be before or after the father requested the test? That is the earliest text messages to the that text effect. messages would be after the father requested the test. Okay, thank you. Ms. Ms. Hunt, if I could, I want to back up um, sort of where Justice Chudich was on the due process issue. Would we have to, um, well, at a minimum, it sounds like we would have to distinguish uh, Hydebreder, but would we have to overrule it? Or what's your view about what we would have to say or do with respect to that authority? No, you would not have to overrule Hydebreder because Hydebreder isn't dealing with the situation here where you have a situation where the paternity action precedes any adoption petition being filed. That wasn't at all, as I read Heidebretter, in the consideration of the court because factually that is not what occurred. So that is the distinguishing factor between um, our case and Heidebretter. Also, in Heidebretter, the court wasn't considering the equal protection issue with regard to raising it on behalf of the child in the sense that you are now treating illegitimate children different than legitimate children with regard to their rights to have a relationship with their biological father. That was not at all addressed in Heidebretter. Just a, uh, thank you, a follow-up to that. Do you know, are there any cases where states have considered um, the constitutionality of the 30-day deadline in the context where the state has also found that there's, there's a substantial due process right? I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's anybody else out there that has, where they found a substantial due process right, as the Court of Appeals did here, and as you're asking us to do as well. Is there anything else out there like that? No, I mean, the closest we come to is the Ohio Supreme Court, where the Ohio Supreme Court didn't have our facts, saying that it didn't have the situation there where the um, father comes in first with a paternity action before there is any adoption petition filed. And there, the majority says, because we don't have those facts, we're going to affirm. But there's a dissent in that case talking about the arbitrariness of that 30-day provision in that it's not tied to anything. I mean, it's not, and that was the uh, dissent's concern in the Ohio Supreme Court. So I'm sorry, one more question just about the procedural dates. As I understand it, there's no dispute in the record that five days after the child was born, the mom did tell the dad about the child's birth. That, that's correct. 
But the, the problem then is the, father, the mother would not otherwise respond to the father for a period of time when father was requesting genetic testing because you also have to remember the facts of record viewed in a light most favorable to father are the fact that he, the, the mother was, as he knew it, on birth control. She had a relationship with someone shortly after him, and he had no reason to believe that the child was his. So that's why with the genetic, when she wouldn't respond and then we'd get well, the genetic Well, no testing. reason to believe is a little strong. I mean, he knew when he had sexual intercourse with the woman, and presumably he knows that birth control is not, uh, doesn't work in every case. So, I mean, I, I, just, I just think five days after the child was born, he had within his control registering with the adoption registry. And we said in Heidebretter, that even though it seems harsh, ignorance of the law, you know, wasn't an excuse there. But and he, he also, if he had filed a paternity action, then, um, you know, he would have been totally protected. Well, but Father also, again, understood by reading the forms that he should, that he would be saying under oath, that he was the father, and he was very concerned about that because he didn't know. That's why he asked for the genetic testing, and that's why there was that delay between the time of getting the genetic Counsel, testing. He also knew, right, that she was seeing someone else by that point. So, she, so that that played into it. Sounds like that played into his. his it it as strongly well. played into it because it was just right after he she saw someone else, he knew that fact. So he had no reason to know that he, in fact, was the father of this child. So, Counsel, if in the circumstances of this case, 30 days, the 30-day test is unconstitutional as applied, um, what test are you advocating? What, what, what test could the legislature implement by legislation that would pass constitutional muster? What would con pass constitutional muster is to allow a paternity action to proceed if, as long as it's filed before an adoption petition is filed. So as long as the paternity action precedes the adoption petition, then it would be constitutional and in accord with due process. So th that would be the cutoff line. And any cutoff that would um, not comply with that standard, to your mind, is unconstitutional, violates procedural due process? Yes. So you could have an adoption, a paternity action and an adoption a couple, three years out, and anything shorter than that violates due process? I, I'm sorry? Well, you could have conceivably um, a paternity action and an adoption action Two, three years out. That's true. And, and so you, so you just can't, it, can't cut off the paternity action before the adoption. That's correct. Because, I mean, again, if we're talking about the child, I mean, if there's no adoption that has been filed and you have a father that is, you know, willing to step up and take care of the child and perhaps didn't know and that a child is... I don't know, in foster care or something else. But, Counsel, isn't that why the father's adoption registry was put into place, was to create um, an ability, because prior to that, there, there was a hole, um, 
but that it was to create the ability for a father who thinks he may be the father of a child to um, to preserve what rights he may have. And it, it seems to me that if we adopt your rule of law, we are not focused on a child because a child's sense of time obviously is very different than that of adults. And it would it could or potentially really drag out a proceeding. And what we want is that for kids to have stability and security and to have um, to have that delayed, I, I find that hard to to see where that would be in the best interest of a child to adopt your rule of law. I'm not saying that there might not be an issue here, but that well, seems to go a little far. I, I don't see why it's an issue because if there has been no adoption petition filed and you have a... But you agree that there is a lot that happens before an adoption petition is filed. For right. example, there can be the placement in the home, the home study is done, the background checks are done. I mean, there can be a number of things that are more bureaucratic that take place prior to the filing of the actual petition. That's true, but that doesn't mean that, in fact, there is going to be an adoption. Maybe the potentially adoptive parents will decide not to petition for adoption. There's a lot of things that may or may not happen. In, even though you've done the home study, et cetera. So, but here where you have a situation where you have the paternity action coming in before the adoption petition is filed, so you know that you have stepping forward the biological father of this child who wants to take you know, care of this child financially, physically, emotionally, um, before there's an adoption petition filed. We don't know if adoption petition would even be filed at the time that this paternity action is brought. So when we're talking about timing, why isn't it in the best interest of the child when you have a relative stepping forward that is willing and able to take care of his child? I guess that's the question. I mean, to me, in thinking of it, from a um, uh, perhaps a very lofty view, but it would be that perhaps it would be best for the party to, or the alleged father, presumed father, to have an ability to contest the adoption and have the district court be able to weigh out what is in the best interest of a child because we all know, sadly, that being related does not automatically make that that person is the appropriate parent for that specific child or caretaker of that specific child. Well, the problem here is, under the lower court's ruling, father has no rights. I mean, the court has deemed that he has abandoned his child, even though he filed this action, he signed the recognition of parentage, and that's what this child is going to go through life, thinking that her father abandoned her, when it's exactly the opposite. So that's the concern here, that the idea that there is the, by the failure to file in the 30 days, that you have therefore, you know, cut off all rights to a father. That is the concern. Well, counsel, um, I, I appreciate your, your argument that Heidbreder is distinguishable, but I want to read you a brief portion of Heidbreder and ask you whether that undercuts the argument you just made. The court said that the statutes could provide more time or greater opportunity for the putative father to establish the required relationship is a policy decision that is left to the legislature. 
Uh, the Minnesota statute provides adequate, uh, adequately protected hydrogen's opportunity to create the relationship. We may, you're arguing we don't have to overrule Heidbreder, but don't we have to disregard vast amounts of language in Heidbreder? But again, in Heidbreder, you were dealing with a situation where you were concerned with a father coming in after an adoption petition was filed to thwart an adoption. Here, we don't have that situation. No, the Heidbreder was concerned with a father coming in more than 30 days after the child's birth. Well, what's without having registered. Right. And, and isn't and, that really what the case was about? Well, what's interesting, though, is the court didn't even face in Heidebretter before it went to that issue because it didn't have it before it, is whether the language of the statute itself would allow this action to proceed because it was brought before a pending adoption petition, which gets us back to the language of the statute itself. So, I mean, it was so different in Heidebretter than what we're facing before the court this morning. And in Heidebretter, as I stated earlier, the court didn't even touch on equal protection with regard to the rights of the child with between an illegitimate, being illegitimate and being legitimate. So I ask that this court reverse. Counsel, just sort of a related question. Um, and this is more of a separation of powers issue. I mean, when you listen to the, the language that Justice Lillehag just quoted and the, the decision has a lot more along that, that line, it really is focusing on the fact that this is a legislative issue. Um, if there's something that needs to be fixed, it's for the legislature to do. And the legislature in the statute has already provided uh, seven categories, basically, in that list of, of, of who can be putative uh, fathers. And so, in some sense, the legislature has already spoken on this. So I, I guess I'm wondering in, in how you deal with that from a, just a separation of powers uh, position. Well, first, the court wasn't asked in Heidebretter to look at this factual situation in construing the statute for the reasons that we've stated in our brief, that we fall, that this isn't statutorily precluded. But if the court disagrees, the fact of the matter is this court has an obligation always to look to see if a statute is constitutional. And in Heidebretter, you had a difference with regard to the circumstances between this father here who assigned a recognition of parentage, his willingness to step up for all the financial. And you also have the issue of the state's interests. And the state's interests, as the DHS has acknowledged, is generally you're looking to place with a relative which uh, falls it within seems the seems like that's kind of baked in there already when again when you look at that list of of uh, seven, the categories of putative fathers it sort of gets at this idea of relative so that's kind of there isn't it well but it isn't after the 30 days and it isn't here where you have the paternity action filed before the adoption petition Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Fiddler. Oh, I got my own water. <laughs> uh, good morning, your honors. May it please the court. My name is Mark Fiddler. I represent the uh, would-be adoptive parents, AK and NK. I'm honored to be here. 
Um, I'm also making arguments on behalf of my co-counsel, Jody DeSmit, who is the attorney for the birth mother. Um, I wanted to just anchor us down into the facts, and Justice Lillehog, you were um, drilling down into them. The, the child was born July, I'm sorry, January 12, 2018. Two days later, the child was placed for adoption by a licensed agency of the state. February 12th, uh, that was the deadline of the father to register on the Minnesota Father's Adoption Registry. February 18th. And before you get into February, am I correct that on January 17, mother informed father of the birth? Uh, that's my understanding. Okay. And then now head into February. Okay. Uh, February 18, 2018, putative father seeks a DNA test. March 5, DNA before, test. Now, before you leave February, okay. um, opposing counsel was uncertain, and I think the record is unclear as to when the father requested a paternity test. And sometime in the middle of February, can you pin that down any further? I'm sorry, I can't do any better than opposing counsel. Okay. Am I into March now? You, you can <laughs> yep. uh, March 7, uh, the mother signs a consent to adoption. March 21st, she signs the ROP without it being revoked. March 23rd. Um, Council, I'm sorry, when did mom file the consent for adoption? The consent uh, was signed on March 7th. On March 23rd, we're now 70 days after birth. Council, and a question as it relates to the consent to adopt. As I look at the forms, it does not um, it does not ask any questions related to who is the father. I mean, I realize it's generic as far as parent, but right. it doesn't ask anything on the consent to adopt form about another parent. That is correct. March 28th, the mother revokes her ROP one day before she got the notice of the injunction. And under the rules, uh, failure to serve the injunction means that it's not binding on her. Uh, April 19th, uh, my clients filed their adoption petition down the road in uh, Ramsey County. So your honors, I think what this is all about is the uh, clear statutory scheme that was built around Lear versus Robertson. And the United States Supreme Court in that case said very clearly that biology uh, by itself does not create rights. Uh, rights do not spring from biology, rather they spring from the exercise of responsibility to the child. And Lear said, used the phrase, uh, full commitment uh, to the child, uh, this court. Counsel, the question that I asked opposing counsel, do you believe that the, the completion of the genetic testing alone, does that create any form of a presumption of paternity? It does not. And you are relying on? Uh, the statutes. Uh, 257 lists uh, the, the presumptions. Um, if you get a uh, DNA test and it confirms that you're the father, it gives you the right to file for paternity but the filing of for paternity itself does not create a presumption. But do you agree with me that the um, completion of the blood tests alone, coupled with the filing of a um, request for paternity, whether that be from the public um, agency, whether that be from the biological mother or the alleged father, that a court could actually order, for example, temporary child support just based on the blood testing 
alone without there having been an adjudication of paternity? I think the statute in 257 says there has to be first an adjudication. Um, and then it says, uh, and in this case, there is the ROP and counsel's relying on the ROP. And the ROP uh, statute says that it can be the basis for a subsequent action under 518 for custody and support, none of which were filed because the, the paternity action was dismissed. Am I also correct in my memory that you actually had something to do with the father's adoption registry? Uh, that would be outside the record, but I, um, you are but, correct. But the purpose was that it was to, to address the issue of fathers being entitled to some form of notice. Yeah, I wrote the registry. Um, that's correct. Counsel, is there any argument uh, on your side of the table that the usual summary judgment rules do not apply in this context? I don't think it really matters, Your Honor. Um, and I know in our brief I said um, you look at it like a motion to dismiss, but both uh, on our side and for the father, uh, the, the father especially relied on the fact that there was a subsequently filed an adoption proceeding, uh, a subsequently revoked revocation of... Uh, well, to me, this case is all about father's intention. I mean, in Lair, which I think really forms the backdrop for Heidebretter, the court, the Supreme Court, talks about the significance of the biological connection is that it offers the natural father an opportunity that no other male possesses to develop a relationship with the offspring. And here's the, 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 the dispositive sentence, in my view. If he grasps that opportunity and accepts some measure of responsibility for the child's future, he may enjoy the blessings of the parent-child relationship. And it seems to me this case turns on whether or not this father grasped the opportunity and accepted some measure of responsibility. And if we construe the evidence in the light most favorable to father, it seems to me he has met that standard. And I, I want you to tell me why you disagree with that. Right. I, I think what you have, Your Honor, is uh, if you look at Lair, it talks about a full assumption a commitment to financial, um, personal relationship. Lair said it requires relationships more enduring. It, it requires that, um, it's, I think the language says at some point the, the father acts, well, as, not, acts as a father. If it's not, I mean, what more could this father have done in terms of, of trying to provide evidence? I mean, we said in Heidebringer, that the father didn't provide any evidence of yeah. an intention to form a relationship. Right. But Fair what enough. more could this father have done? Uh, Again, construing the evidence in the light most favorable to father as the party who lost on summary judgment. Right. Uh, Fair enough. So the paternity complaint um, is an expression of uh, desire to, uh, for an adjudication of paternity. There was no support provided. And, and I've seen countless cases where, um, you know, you get into contested proceedings and, you know, uh, counsel that's familiar with the adoption law, you know, immediately starts paying support during the pendency of the proceedings. And we've been here almost a year and no support. Well, but counsel, correct me if I'm wrong about the facts, but as I read the complaint, it looks like he, he offered to pay something, the mother refused. Um, he attempted to have some sort of relationship. The mother rebuffed that. He moves back from Arizona or wherever it yeah. was where he had accepted a job. 
um, in order to try to foster a relationship right. with the child. So I, I share the chief's concern. What more would you expect? And it's certainly more than what Mr. Heidebreeder did. And so there is, again, taking the facts in, in his favor, in the light most favorable to him, um, those seem to me to be significant uh, pieces of evidence that show he was at least he was attempting to establish yeah. that relationship. He could have sent checks to the mother. He could have sent gift cards, uh, target cards for diapers. And the other problem is uh, uh, he had 10 months to do all those things. And had he done any of those things, paid sub substantial support. So you, you talked about the list of seven things a father can do. It's a very broad and actually over-inclusive list because it includes fathers who have not actually stepped forward and assumed full responsibility. For instance, it, it talks about simply signing the ROP. Uh, it talks about filing a paternity action, um, you know, within 30 days of birth. So here, the father, he knew when he had sex with the mother. He, he knew. I, I, but again, let's, let's taking the evidence that. in the light most favorable to him, Again, I mean, his position is, look, I didn't know it was my baby. Maybe I should have known. I didn't know. I'm trying to get to the bottom of this with a DNA test. Again, construing the evidence in the light most favorable to him. I mean, isn't that where we are? Let's say uh, at, at the time that he filed his action, let's just assume that he did have a full assumption of responsibility. At that point, it's too late. And the legislature said, what the dividing line is for too late. I mean, how long do we wait for it to... Well, to... I think that's a very good point. How long do we wait? I yeah. think, I think um, opposing counsel's rule is probably too broad. The idea that we could... I mean, this is a... After all, when we get to due process, we're balancing now. Right. The interests of the father versus the interests of the state. And here, when the paternity action is filed right on the heels of when dad finds out, yep, this is my baby... The adoption petition hasn't been filed yet. And again, construing the evidence in the light most favorable to the father, he has stepped forward and said, I want to take responsibility for this baby. So then you do the balancing. And, and it seems to me that's where we are. And I don't think under Lair that, or under the, the MFAR statute itself, uh, that that is timely. And when you look at... Um, the language and the oh, I agree it's not timely that's the point so the 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 30 days then becomes part of the balance and in right. this unique situation it seems to me the balance tips in favor of the father I'm sorry the balance in this unique situation the balance because the father has I think in, in, in is entitled under Heidebringer to substantial due process rights I think the balance tips in favor of the father. Well, I cited uh, numerous cases in our brief that talks about uh, the, the initiation of paternity proceedings that were late, uh, and they all analyze, um, I think, what your point of view under Lair, and they, all, they uni almost uniformly hold, there's about 40 states that um, take the view that in order to commence that paternity action, you need to have a prior um, demonstration of that full responsibility in the sense of Lair. And counsel, um, to register with the adoption registry, you don't have to know for certain that you're the father, right? The whole point is that you're registering in case, to protect your rights in case you are. 
Exactly, Your Honor. And in fact, the, the point of the registry was to provide a mechanism where the father did not have to depend on a, a truthful uh, statement from the mother about whether he's the father. Counsel, construing all the facts in favor of father, what is the earliest date that one could argue that father knew or suspected, he had, had an inkling that this child might be his biologically? I'm wanting to put it in mid-January. And is that because uh, I've got a date of January 17 where mother informs father of the birth. What I can't, was, I can't was, give you an earlier date. What was the content of that conversation? Was there, was there enough to put father on notice that he should at least have an inkling this child might be his biologically? It's my understanding that she told him that uh, she's pregnant and it's his. But, um, and then how long did it take before he took action? And again, I don't know when he actually requested the DNA test, but we didn't get it back until March 5th. Took, took action to protect his rights. Took action to protect his rights. He waited until March 28th. Well, but in the meantime, he's trying to get information from mother, right? Again, construing the evidence in the light most favorable to the father. Right. And I, and I think what, what you have to distinguish between in these cases, um, in the full responsibility test, is he, does he have a protectable due process interest, is distinguishing between uh, the subjective intentions of the father. You'll have all kinds of fathers saying, well, I would have done Council, this. what I hear you saying is that you look to evidence which is similar or akin to what the district court would look at if there was a petition to terminate his parental rights. So even if there had been a paternity action filed, the court would look at, okay, you've, you've now are legally the father, but what have you done to be the father, such as cards, letters, gifts, right. financial support, inquiry, doctor visits, school, et cetera. Right, exactly. And, and again, the statute is, is very protective of father's rights. And if the father had paid uh, substantial support, he wouldn't be in this predicament. If he had commenced a paternity action one day after conception, which he had the right to do, and is he it, also had the is right. It part of the point, though, that he never got a hearing to make any of those determinations, isn't that the denial of due process here? Uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Isn't the denial of due process here that he just never even got a chance to to make that case? Uh, not because the his his assumption of responsibility was untimely, and as this court held in Hydebreder. You know, the, the mechanism that Minnesota set up to protect rights, you know, uh, adequately protected those rights. And that follows almost identically to the, the registry that was at issue in Lair versus Roberts. Counsel, if your client loses um, and the paternity action is allowed to proceed forward, what next? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, what happens is the, under the statutes, uh, um, he gets notice. And then, uh, ironically, I think we circle right back and we've got the question of whether there's abandonment. And the other thing that um, counsel didn't bring up and the consequence for this court to consider is if part of the MFAR is uh, uh, declared unconstitutional, it doesn't just affect MFAR, it affects the operation of MFAR in 
juvenile protection proceedings because well, two wouldn't that only be if that was if it was declared unconstitutional facially we're talking about I think um, as applied yeah, yeah as an and as applied challenge so yeah. that seems to me to obviously to be fundamentally different yeah and every one of those fathers in the termination case would have the ability to say well as applied to me um, I um, I filed my paternity action a month, two months after birth, after the registry failure, and I've got a protectable due process interest. Um, Let me talk a little bit about the status of, uh, of the jurisprudence. Um, one of the issues here is I think this case doesn't fit neatly uh, with uh, Heidbretter or Lair. It's, it's different than both of those cases in that we have more activity on the part of father than were present in either of those two cases, although it, the activity appears to occur outside of the 30-day window. I'm wondering, uh, in all those 40 cases that you say um, uphold that 30-day deadline, do any of those cases deal with circumstances like we find here? I, I don't see any Minnesota cases that to deal with it. Heidbretter is really kind of it as far as we're concerned. Right. Um, at the end of my uh, responsive brief, I think it's the last section, I, there's a, a very long uh, string site uh, to be helpful to look at because um, it's very common in adoption cases for somebody to file for paternity and claim that the, the filing of paternity uh, rebuts any kind of claim of abandonment. And well, what we but we what we've got here is a little bit more than that. It seems to me, but I don't know. You would argue about how much more, and I'm just wondering: Are there any cases that look at all like this that other jurisdictions have decided? Uh, not that I'm aware of, Your Honor. Counsel, the part of um, the statute 259.52 that I subdivision eight that I have a real problem with is the provision that a lack of knowledge of the pregnancy or birth is not an acceptable reason for failure to register. So you don't even know that there is a pregnancy, that there's a child born, and yet if you don't act within 30 days after the child is born, you're considered to have abandoned the child. How is that defensible constitutionally? Well, you upheld it in Heidbretter. Um, well, no, and, and, we upheld the 30-day deadline, he, 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 but he knew about the, the birth. He just filed on day 31. So we didn't uphold that part of the statute in Heidbretter. Yeah. Well, the statute doesn't require any notification to the mother, so I think that's your question. Why is that constitutional? Um, to the father. To the father, right. And under Lair, um, it, it tracks with the, the New York registry you know, the New York registry didn't require any notice, and it was upheld in layer. And, you know, the father has the, the idea of the registry. Um, I don't know if Isn't I, uh, there a provision in the New York statute, though, that there was a clear and convincing evidence requirement father could prove that because of mother's behavior, he, by clear and convincing evidence, he couldn't have known or something like I mean, the Minnesota statute is different, it seems to me, on this point that Justice Lillehog is raising from the New York that statute. That could be. I'm not, I can't uh, verify that, Your Honor. But I know in other states, um, I had a case that actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, adoptive couple versus baby girl. But in that case, one of the issues was whether the, the father was thwarted. And we don't have that um, doctrine developed yet in Minnesota. But there are, um, and I, I concede, there, there may be limited situations where 
somebody didn't timely file, the father tried to uh, step forward and do the right thing, but was thwarted from doing so. And in that case, the court found that he was not thwarted, so that issue didn't go up on appeal. Um, and here, as I asked opposing counsel, I, I think the record is clear that the, the mom told the father five days after the birth, of the birth. It, it's not clear that she told him, you know, that it was his child. That's the dispute. But there's no question here that he knew of the birth well within that 30-day period, correct? Exactly. Let me ask you another question. In considering the best interests of the child, um, it seems unfortunate to me that um, the statute sort of um, presumes abandonment when the, when the father hasn't registered within the 30-day period. Um, because that's, that's a hard thing for a child. I mean, a child is always going to wonder about the birth parents and why, why the child isn't with them. So um, what's your response to that? Going back to Lair, it says it's, uh, the father is entitled to due process protections when he acts like a father, when he steps forward. And, um, you know, and it is a loss to the child uh, if the father doesn't do any of the things that uh, warrant him notice under, the, under 259. If he doesn't pay support, that is a loss to the child. And an adoption is fraught with cases of loss. But that, that, that's the judgment of the legislature to say, okay, you haven't stepped forward, you haven't assumed responsibility, time is up. And all the expressions of responsibility are subsequent to that 30-day period. Yeah, and, and I can understand that it seems somewhat unfair to, um, you know, say unless you step forward within that 30-day period, you don't get the opportunity to show that you can be a good dad, but I think that's that's what the court decided in Heidebreder was necessary, given that you have a baby whose time frame is very different than than the adults. I have to agree, Your Honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Counsel, opposing counsel made some mention that uh, father was concerned about registering with the registry um, until he knew for sure that he was the biological father because he had to sign something under oath. Can you respond to that line of argument? You know, I've never seen anybody uh, held liable for uh, paternity or being adjudicated simply by, by virtue of registering. So the, the registration doesn't... Um, Do you have to make an affirmation in the registration application under oath that you are, in fact, the father of a, of a child? No, and in fact, I think the statute says a man who thinks he may be the father has the right to file. For the so you don't you don't have to be sure. Getting notice. You don't right right. You don't have to be sure. And going back to the idea of filing the paternity action, you can file the paternity action and not be sure. You just have to state a good faith belief that there's reason to believe that you could be the father. And a statement of sexual relations, you, you know, usually satisfies that that test. And then in that paternity action, you can ask for the DNA test. And is there anything in the record that shows that there was any impediment to the father filing with the registry after January 17 when he was informed of the birth of the child? There isn't. And the registry um, permits him to make a, a showing of impossibility. 
and there's no uh, evidence of any record of impossibility. And that hasn't, that hasn't been argued here? No, he never argued it was impossible. I, I just want to make sure I'm clear. If we were to accept the father's argument and find that his filing of the paternity action did create, um, as applied, a, a, he should have been, been notified of the adoption. And if he didn't consent, is there any recourse for the adoptive parents at that time? If he did not consent to, if he does not uh, consent to, yes, this. then I think that we would have uh, a claim both under 260C301 for abandonment for failure to register because the legislature said, not just in the adoption context but in 260C, uh, you can terminate parental rights. For, it's prima, prima facie evidence of abandonment. So the legislature has made that harsh. I, I don't even think it's harsh. Some people can call it harsh, but that, that, that strict 30-day deadline, the legislature has set it out in statute, and I see my, my time is up. So thank you for listening, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Ms. Hunt, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Counsel, as you're getting um, ready, can you respond to the one of the last questions that was posed to um, Mr. Fiddler in that did your client... Does the record show that your client made any um, arguments that it was impossible for him to file the registry within the allotted time? He did not make any arguments. And counsel, following up on that, um, let me tell you what's kind of gnawing at me about the case. Um, father was informed on January 17 that of the birth of the child. And he didn't register until March 21. Now, even if you start the 30 days running at January 17 rather than January 12, we're still talking about more than two months of not registering. What's the, what's the explanation for that? The explanation was it was his understanding that he needed to know that he was indeed the biological father of the child. And was that understanding correct or incorrect as a matter of law? I think it was with regard to the recognition of parentage, when you look at the DHS forms, that was probably correct. Um, with regard to the father's adoption registry, probably incorrect. Going back to um, the, the facts, um, counsel stated that mother filed the or assign the consent to adoption uh, in March. There's no record of that that I can see as to when she signed that. Also, with regard to the injunction order, on March 27th, the notice of filing of injunction order was mailed to mother by the district court. She signed the revocation of the recognition of parentage the next day. And mother in her affidavit stated that the reason she signed the revocation was because she, because father was now contesting the adoption, which falls directly in line with a problem with the injunction order that was in place. Mother never stated in her affidavit, and I'm sure she would have, if she wasn't aware of the injunction order when she signed the revocation. So just to be clear factually, 
we have a situation with a recognition of parentage signed by both parents, which clearly state the reason for it being that, you know, the father will, you know, can provide full support for the child, and the reason is to establish paternity and that he can then move for custody but, but of counsel, the child. Do you, do you agree, though, that, um, that the adoption, the father's adoption registry, the way that it um, is set up, that he, he does not need the mother's consent, knowledge, um, any cooperation um, from her at all in order for him to actually put in his um, thoughts that he may be the father, to actually have completed the registry. That's true, but for the recognition of parentage, you do need the mother's consent. And there is nothing that I can see in the father's adoption registry that says that you cannot execute the recognition of parentage after that 30 days and that that shouldn't stand. I mean, and when we talk about coming forward to take full responsibility for the child, in Lear, the child was two years old and the father had done nothing. There's a different circumstance when you're talking about a newborn. And here, you, who, would, who would the father pay support to? The mother isn't responding to the father. You have the text messages where the father's saying, I will take the child. I can provide for the child financially, personally, emotionally. I'm not sure what else this father can do other than we're here because he failed to file with the father's adoption registry within 30 days. Counsel, can you, you're, you're touching on, on something that um, Mr. Fiddler said, that we might not be here if, in fact, father had sent money, for instance, to mom. And what's your response to that? We'd still be here because we, we've, you would say, well, you haven't filed within 30 days. It doesn't matter. You know, it would never be enough. I'm not sure sending a gift card to Target from Target is any different than signing a recognition of parentage saying, I will be responsible going back for all the birthing expenses, going back for child support. I mean, the father here under oath... But simply signing the recognition of parentage doesn't, doesn't mean that he's agreeing to all of that. It, does, it is an effort on his part to say, I am the father, and whatever comes with that, or the court decides whatever comes with that. But I... I, it doesn't, I mean, there is case law to support, and it's around, um, you know, the whole child protection world as far as what we look at, which is more than just the signing of a document, which is what have they done um, objectively, not just a subjective signing, what have they done to sh demonstrate their commitment to the child? And, and while I understand there might have been some some issues with who to send the gift card to, but that is an outward expression of I am the dad and I want to be responsible for this child more than just in name. But isn't the whole point here that because of the 30 days, he never gets a chance to prove any of that? That's exactly right. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, all this discussion about all these things he could have done is irrelevant because from a due process perspective, arguably, because he never got a chance to even go there. He never did. And, you know, he, he has done everything he... Well, is there anything in the record that says that he did any of those things that tells us? Is there anything in the record that he did do any of those things, such as send any support? Or is Mr. Fiddler correct that there is nothing in the record? Well, and I, I think the fact that you have the text messages between the, the parents saying that I will take the child, I will provide for the child, 
I mean, I don't know what else other than that can show the full support of this father versus, you know, sending a Target gift card versus a father who comes back to Minnesota, says to the mother, look, I mean, I will take care of the child. I want the child. I want, you know, to raise the child. I mean, that's accepting full responsibility. And that's not what occurred in the Lear case. In the Lear case, you had two years with nothing. And Hildebrand, he knew he was the father, there's no question, but he didn't want full or custody of the child. There's a court footnote saying, you know, he wanted to thwart the adoption. Counsel, let's say the um, legislature amended subdivision eight. And instead of triggering the 30, the, t the timing um, based on the birth of the child, they triggered it based on when the putative father knew or had reason to know that he might be the father. And let's say they made it 60 days instead of 30 days. Would that satisfy the constitutional requirement of procedural due process? It would be better than what we have now. That's for certain. Would it still be unconstitutional? And if so, why? The, the question is, when you're looking at due process, you're looking at the balancing the interests. And I think you'd be closer to balancing the interests there than with this arbitrary 30-day period. So, I mean, you always get into the balancing act. Counsel, I'm curious. Um, Mr. Fiddler said in answer to one of my questions, or we were talking about whether this was an, an as-applied challenge or a facial challenge, and he said that even as an applied challenge, we would be, if we went that way, we would be opening the door, opening sort of Pandora's box to uh, any number of, of uh, putative fathers who would come in and say, well, I filed my uh, paternity uh, action before the adoption, and so, I mean, I'm wondering if you have any sense of how big a door that is that we might be opening. Because his argument, it seemed to me, is there would be a flood of people coming in to say, listen to my situation, you know, and, and, and there we'd be. I can't imagine there would be. And given that Heidebretter was decided in 2002, and to my knowledge, the court hasn't seen this kind of situation either. I mean, I'm not aware of any district court action. I'm not aware of any court of appeals decisions. So I would say no. I mean, I think, you know, generally you don't have a situation like this where you have a father that is coming in like this before the adoption petition saying, you know, I want to have a that Counsel, I'd like to ask you the same question I asked opposing counsel, and it's, it's a little different twist on the question I asked you during your argument, which is on the state of the law here. And I'm, you know, because I, I think when all the dust settles here, this may come down to um, how strict is that 30-day deadline. And I'm just wondering, if I'm correct, that this case fits into a space that Lair doesn't uh, cover and that Heidebrecher doesn't cover. Um, are there any other cases where um, courts have considered the constitutionality in an as-applied context of that 30-day registration deadline where fathers were determined to be entitled to some form of due process? Something else was going on than simply um, a failure to uh, file. No. I mean, the closest, like I said, is the Ohio Supreme Court that said 
they would be looking at it if they had our fact situation where the father had stepped up and filed a paternity action before the adoption proceeding, but they did not have that situation before it. Okay, thank you. Uh, just wanted, so a lot of the argument on, comes down to the fact of the timing of the adoption. And from a constitutional perspective, is that because when an adoption proceeding is filed, the state's interests get balanced in a different way? Why, why is the timing of the adoption relevant? I, I think it, it's relevant because then you're, you're looking for a uh, more permanent placement for the child with the adoption petition actually being filed. But prior to that, where you have the paternity and you have the father stepping up here, then, I mean, the state's interests are looking at, you know, with the with the relative, and I think that that's 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 different. Although even with competing um, adoption petitions, um, as the DHS recognizes, it is the relative that the court generally or the state will give preference to. Uh, I ask that this court reverse. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.